Hi folks, Patrick here. Welcome back for another episode of Bibliology. This is of course the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and academic theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. Today I'm excited for you all to get to hear my conversation with Dr. Amy Peeler, Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College and specialist in such topics as the Epistle to the Hebrews, Ancient Rhetoric, the Use of the Old Testament and New, Family and Inheritance in the Ancient World and Feminist Theology. Today we'll be discussing her fascinating new book, Women and the Gender of God, published with Erdman's and available to purchase in the description below. This is a great theology-heavy read. There is so much to chew over in this book, so if you're partial to in-depth theological analysis like me, definitely get this book. Before we get on to the conversation, I'm pleased to say that Bibliology is now accepting donations, so if you want to give to support the podcast, feel free to use the PayPal link below. Other than that, I hope you guys enjoy the conversation, and I will speak soon. Well, hello, Amy. Thank you for coming on the show. Great to have oh, you on. So glad to be here, Patrick. It's really nice to meet you. Yep, you too. And um, I'm excited to get to discuss your upcoming book with you, which is, of course, Women and the Gender of God. We'll be talking about that. But before we do that, maybe the audience would like to get to know you a little bit um, as a person. So um, the first question I have, um, and this will set the stage nicely, I think, is growing up, what did you think of as your most likely and least likely career path? That's a really fun question. Um, my mom is a high school teacher, high school math teacher. So I think I imagined myself as a teacher, which now that I'm a professor, I get to do. So I was totally the kid that would line up my stuffed animals and design homework for them. I, I really have always uh, wanted to and loved teaching. Um, I was also really involved in musical theater as a child. My dad did theater in college and introduced me. So if you would have asked me around the age of eight or nine, I would have said, oh, I'm going to be an actress. Um, that did not pan out, but I do think being on stage was beneficial for speaking in public speaking in the classroom, et cetera. So, so those seemed likely to me at, at when I was young. Um, oh, there would be so many that would be unlikely, um, but maybe pertinent for our conversation. I grew up in a wonderful church. so appreciative of my background, but never kind of imagined myself in church work. Uh, and so any kind of ministry capacity that came much later in life, almost when I was 30. So that wouldn't have been on my radar quite at all. <laughs> okay. Yeah. When you said that you used to, um, arrange your, um, dolls, whatever, and, um, speak to them, it's weird. I just remembered as you were saying that, that I did that as well. So it must, oh, fun. <laughs> it, it must be just a common sort of child thing to do. I don't know. It's that's interesting. It must be. I wonder where do you fall in your sibling range? I was the oldest, so I had a few years without anyone to play with. So <laughs> okay, no, I'm the, I'm the youngest. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, so who, who, who knows? I'm sure there's a psychologist who can yes. email me and explain. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, that's um, you're, of course, talking about how you became involved in the church there. And um, currently you're an Episcopal priest. Am I correct? That's yeah. correct. Yeah. Yeah. So have you always been part of this denomination or if not, what is it that attracted attracted you to this Christian tradition? 
Yeah, that uh, no, I grew up Southern Baptist, and um, those who are familiar with an American context understand that uh, that is a focus on scripture, rather low church and worship style. But as I mentioned, had a really wonderful upbringing in that denomination. Um, I'm married to a church organist, so a musician, and so he was becoming more and more interested in liturgy uh, the older and older we got. And so, kind of through his academic studies, we found our way into more liturgical churches. And it was in our first teaching jobs. We taught at Indiana Wesleyan University and uh, visited around some churches, were invited to a local Episcopal parish, and just felt like we were coming home. Um, So that question of what attracted us I think for us, we appreciated the communal focus, and I recognize probably lots of people say that, but um, in our own growing up, and I probably, this was my misperception, I'm sure that my church leaders didn't say this, but I kind of understood faith to be me and Jesus. Uh, And it was wonderful to realize in the Episcopal Church, you think about the global church, you think about the historical church, you have these words that have been said for centuries, if not millennia. And so we were very attracted to that, uh, the beauty of it, the somberness of it. Uh, We appreciated that the worship service had space for both silence and really reverent music. So those are a few of the things that that attracted us. And I recognize, you know, it's certainly not for everyone. I'm a big believer that denominations are a reflection of the diversity of the body of Christ, but we found a good home there. Mm. So, so you think Paul would be would be okay with with uh, denominations? Do you? That's an interesting. You know, that's a wonderful question. I ask my students that when we get to First Corinthians, and you know, he's talking about their alignment with different leaders. I said, "Do you think he's talking about de- denominations? Would that apply to us?" Uh, and we really have some good discussion there. I recognize, of course, though, that my experience is very much right in an American context. I imagine that other places, the um, the debates between denominations have been more intense than they have been in the 1980s in America. So yeah, I recognize there's going to be different answers to that. Sure, of course. And um, the other thing um, that is um, relevant is that you're, you're, you're a professional theologian. And um, what is the, uh, this is a fun question. What, what, is this, what is the strangest theological position you have ever come across? Oh, that was, that is a great question. I kind of noodled on that for a while. Um, You know, that's, that's an interesting, that's kind of a weighty thing to say. You're a professional theologian. Oh my, I kind of want to, you know, back away from that a little bit. No, but I, I love the the vocation to which I have been called. Um, But, you know, as I thought about this question, as someone who is focused on the biblical text, so my degree is in New Testament studies. I teach New Testament. That's the majority of my job. Um, I have not found, I have not been as exposed, I think, to wild theological traditions because I spend so much time in the text. I've tried to read widely, of course, Um, but what I've discovered in my study of the text is that there are many different theological positions that can have a pretty responsible reading of particular texts. And so I don't know that I can think of any really wild theological opinions. What I challenge my students to do is, especially in there in the midst of debate, maybe with a class member with whom they disagree, say, could you both uh, faithfully and plausibly read the text to support your position? And if that is the case for both of you, then can you have a deeper approach? 
appreciation. You don't have to agree with one another, but a deeper appreciation that the person that you disagree with also has a legitimate position. So um, scripture can be misread. Uh, and maybe maybe that that is some things that I've noticed that I try to fight against. Uh, but as far as theological positions, if they've endured in the church, they usually have some kind of rooting in scripture. Mm. Yeah, yeah, right enough. And I suppose the ones that are especially wild tend to be the ones that start cults and then the, the cults fade out eventually sort of thing. So we would hope so. Yes. Well, well yes, some of them haven't. Yes. Uh, we, won't, we won't mention any in particular. Um, but um, yeah, so we'll we'll get on to talking about your book, speaking of um, wild theological positions. <laughs> but um, this is, of course, Women and the Gender of God and what you're doing in this book, um, it, it was summed up quite energetically in the blurb that I read, where it said provides a robust theological defense against the heresy that God is male. Mm. Um, I, I'm imagining that was your publisher who wrote that blurb, not? They definitely helped me. They have a way okay. with words. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, at, at the outset, you know, are there any contemporary theologians like mm. who would outright affirm that God is male or is it always more subtle than that? What what examples would you point to? Oh, that's a, that's such a great question. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's definitely the latter. It's definitely a subtlety. And um, my hope with the book, well, I have, we have lots of hopes with the book, ultimately, that it glorifies God. Uh, and then secondarily, that those who have wondered about these questions of gender, both of human identity and how we name God, would take this book up and find both encouragement and, and challenge to deeper thinking. So if those are my overarching goals, um, there is also, I, I have have learned in, in publishing that you also want to kind of light the spark of a potential reader. And so the title itself is, is provocative. And I think it does aptly describe what I'm doing, but it asks the question, wait, God, gender, what, what, what are we doing with that? And then so too with the blurb. So yeah, let me add a little bit of clarity there. Definitely it's the case that it's kind of a given in Christian theology that God is not a male being, right? God is creator, not creature. And so this is shared. In fact, I, I draw from Sarah Coakley, who says it really beautifully. This is just a given in theology. That being said, as I've done a lot of reading over the past really 10 years, I've been working on this project, uh, I have noticed some of the subtleties, not so much that God is male, but that God's actions are described as masculine, uh, God's transcendence, God's initiation. And while I understand that in certain frameworks, I think what has ended up happening is that when that assumption is present, especially when it's unnamed, then there can be a result in which actually men have a preference. They they image God a bit more closely and more naturally than do women uh, because of this kind of gendered assumptions about God. Mm -hmm. um, now, that is kind of from the theology side. In my opening chapter, I also more recently have become acquainted with mainly biblical scholars, uh, usually from um, maybe not even a faith perspective, who have said, look at all the language in scripture. It sounds awfully male. <laughs> and so let's not kind of pretend this is what the text says. So I was, uh, you know, engaging with both of those, the kind of subtle masculine argument, as well as the examples in the language itself, uh, and trying to um, listen to both and then give an answer to both. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, um, 
um, segues nicely into and um, what you say that on the one hand, this is just quoting you, on the one hand, conservative theologians retain a tight grip on the male-like masculinity of God. In another discourse community, post-Christian critics dare interpreters to deny the seemingly obvious male God of the biblical text. Um, so which group do you think your thesis will be more likely to convince? Um, I doubt either of them. Uh, and maybe this is my resonance with being an Anglican is uh, finding this via media. But um, I would wager that someone maybe that finds uh, tight alignment in, say, the Center for uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood uh, probably is not going to be convinced. Like I, I'm a bit off-putting, and I recognize that. I'm a female theologian. I'm also in ministry. So I can't imagine that there would be kind of wholesale buy-in from that community. So too with the more critical, I think they would be frustrated with me that I would describe myself as an inerrantist. I put myself under the authority of the text. I believe in the tradition, believing even in the virgin birth is, is something that would not be adopted by a post-Christian uh, interpreter. So I don't, I don't know that, um, you know, the kind of uh, parts of SBL that are very into higher criticism are also going to be super excited <laughs> about this book. Um, but I really am aiming for the kind of students that I'm blessed to interact with here at Wheaton so often. Uh, grown up in uh, churches, uh, faith is very important to them, but they have a lot of questions about their own identity and God. And so that's really the the the, the group that I'm aiming for. Do we trust scripture? Do we trust that God is good? Yes. And so let's ask them those really hard questions that maybe we've been afraid to ask before about our own uh, embodied identity and how we get caught up into the Christian story. Mm, I suppose it's always the undecided we write these kinds of books for, I guess. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, that's, that's well said. Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, as I was thinking over the, over that question that you know, probably, probably conservative theologians, I think, are more likely, I mm. think, because and I think that's yeah. because those that are in the, the other camp maybe wouldn't even accept theological reasoning, if you get me. You know, right. So, and this book is unapologetically theological, isn't it? So, right. right. You know, no, I'm actually yeah. hopeful for that. Thank you, Patrick. That, that's an excellent point. I really have endeavored to um, cross all my T's and dot all my I's. Like I'm trying to show uh, the work that I've been doing. I, I'm certainly got some things wrong and I look forward to conversations that ensue. But I do hope that a, a reader of goodwill, even if they might not agree with the way that I live out my life, uh, might look at the arguments that I'm making and, and see at least that I've aimed to be both reasonable and faithful in making them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, could you briefly like sketch some evidence that, you know, those two groups, maybe they would have different evidence, but what evidence would be appealed mm -hmm. to, which supposedly justifies this claim that, that God is male? Oh yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, maybe I'll start with the, the, the more critical side first. Um, it, it definitely is the frequency of language for God, uh, masculine pronouns, masculine names, um, and that's how God names God's self, right? There's actually a series of books several years ago, This Is My Name Forever. Uh, these came out maybe 20 years ago in which there's lots of essays kind of saying, this is how God names. This is the revelation that we're given in scripture. Um, and you do have, of course, 
feminine metaphors for God, the mother hen, I am the rock who bore you, uh, nursing metaphors. Those are there, but they're, that's, that's always kind of descriptive of God's qualities. It's never the name. And it's not like, uh, it, I mean, you know, if you do the stats, uh, it's overwhelmingly masculine language and imagery. So I think that that would be the data. In fact, there's a recent exchange in Journal of Biblical Literature, uh, a man who wrote, you know, look at all the masculine language for God in the Old Testament. This came out several months ago, laid it out again. And then just recently, a person responded and said, yes, but we have to think metaphorically. So this is a very live conversation. On the other side, like I mentioned earlier, and this is really important to me, no one is explicitly saying God is male, uh, but they will point toward, again, language, uh, and also, again, kind of a framework in which God's actions, the God who initiates, God who is all-powerful, God who is transcendent, that these are equated in a kind of ontology with masculinity. And I have been, well, um, I've been benefited from some philosophy, feminist philosophy of religion that just kind of calls into question why those things have to be masculine. Uh, And then I turn to the text to say, that's really not a necessity. Um, I can't deny as well, and I think this is a part of the book that, um, you know, will be a bit controversial, but I think in communities in which only men can represent God, there's then this kind of backlash assumption of God's preference for the male or masculinity. Uh, And I recognize in the book, I think I say in in a footnote, and I really do hope people pay attention, there are other reasons that communities may have for limiting the vocation of women in ministry. I'm not fighting that battle wholesale, but I am asking those communities, like if that decision is rooted in some kind of unstated assumption of God's preference for the masculine, I would encourage you to think through that. Uh, but there may be other reasons, right? And and those could be taken up in another another occasion. Mm. Could you maybe um, give some ways that theologians of the past have tried to, you know, account for the gendered language about God? And yeah. you know, what? why do you think that maybe, the, why did you have to write this book? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Wonderful question. Love that. Um, You know, this was a very live discussion when I was in seminary. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on the fatherhood of God. Uh, I just discovered in Hebrews, the way that God's paternal characteristics is laid out in that letter was amazing. So I was discovering all these wonderful things in Hebrews. But then at the same time, I was listening, especially to conversations among uh, Presbyterians uh, in America, PCUSA, where I went to a Presbyterian seminary, who were having a lot of discussions about how do we talk about God? Uh, it's problematic, uh, some were saying, and, and I do understand people coming from a place of saying, if we only talk about God and masculine, that's problematic for some. So I was listening to those conversations. I think one thing that came out of that is that um, people have tried to have balance in language for God. So maybe using both masculine and feminine-ish metaphors or um, stepping away from personal language for God to something like creator, sustainer, redeemer, or maybe going in the direction of saying, well, if there we have father and son, then maybe we could think about the Holy Spirit as more feminine. Um, 
I definitely think that using language for God, anything that we're given in scripture, we could be able to use in worship. That, that's again, is my position that scripture is my authority. Uh, the latter instance of kind of adding in a femininity with the spirit, I'm a little bit hesitant to. Number one, grammatically, I recognize that the terms ruach and pneuma are both feminine and neuter, uh, but language just works differently than it does in English. Yeah. Uh, so that wouldn't be a strong argument. And most important to me is that if there's this kind of idea, oh, let's create balance by adding a little femininity with the Holy Spirit. That's actually assuming that God, the father is in fact, male and masculine, right? That's kind of like yeah, building yeah. upon what you're seeking to destroy. Um, and so I would not want to go in that direction. So I think balance can be used if it's rooted in scripture, but it's not going to solve all the problems. Um, and then there's another theologian that I discovered along the way, Lynn Marie Tonstad. Uh, she's at Yale, um, very provocative theologian. I, I, I doubt that she would agree with me on everything and vice versa, but I was very, very benefited by her insights that you have a lot of tradition who will say, yeah, God is a father, but not like other fathers. She calls it the crossed out father. And every time you say, yeah, but it's not like this, it's not like this, it's not like this, then that thing that you're denying actually is very prominent in the discourse. And so I was so challenged by her to say, I think that was my initial approach. Okay, well, God is father, but let's look at what scripture says. God's a really good father, but that kind of negation of human fathers still stands there. Yeah. So then what I, what I realized building upon Tonstad is actually, I do want to assert that God is a father, father of Jesus Christ. What do fathers do? Fathers cause uh, the um, coming to be of a child by partnering with a woman. Um, and I think that's what we get of the revelation of God language as father centered on Jesus Christ. Um, may I say one more thing there? Because I recognize even uttering that sentence is like, wait, what? <laughs> Let me clarify just a moment. First off, uh, God is definitely referred to as father of Israel a handful of times. Don't That's a beautiful, but it is very metaphoric, right? He's like a father to the king. He's like a father to the nation, nation by virtue of electing them. But when you get to the New Testament, then it just explodes, right? God really is the father of Jesus Christ. And I think we get that language because it is the revelation of Christ who speaks, uh, who teaches us how to speak well and understand God. Um, now, second thing I'd like to say is this is why it's so important to turn to the birth narratives, because Matthew and Luke are insistent that, yes, God is partnering with a woman to cause a child, but it is absolutely not sexualized. And so that's where you get this kind of uh, what to me is a really interesting assertion. Yes, God is father, but God is absolutely not male. And if you get that at the center of the Christian tradition, the coming of Christ, then I think that should reverberate uh, throughout to, to impact how we think about God. Hmm. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a bit on your um, emphasis on the incarnation, because, you know, that is something definitely that's unique about your approach. You know, this big emphasis on the Virgin Mary in hmm. your case against God being male and like, that's not something most of us would naturally associate with this topic. So, you know, maybe could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Absolutely. Glad to. Um, 
I think if I might, I might say just a little bit of history to how I got there, and that will help me clarify what I'm arguing in that point. Yeah. Um, for, for quite some time, I've been interested in fatherhood all the way from my dissertation. I was interested in our identity, Christian's identity as sons and daughters, and I was continuing to do work in those areas. I have a dear friend and colleague, he's an art historian, who his work has focused on the Virgin Mary, icons of Virgin Mary from a Greek Orthodox church. We teach here together at Wheaton and went to seminary together. So we're longtime friends. Well, it was actually at a Thanksgiving dinner once. And he said, you know, you talk about fatherhood. You talk a lot about sonship. Why aren't you talking about mother, right? Why? This is a missing piece. And it was that moment that it was like, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, as a Protestant, Protestant in America in the South, you hear about Mary at Christmas and she's fun and lovely. And, and then you never hear about her again. And I recognize there's reasons for that. Uh, but this, she was just nowhere on my radar. And so when I turned to her story, I both discovered this is a fascinating story. The exegesis on her, there's not much, but it's so rich. And then in particular, I feel like I was then I kind of, I found a new answer to this question of how do we speak well of God? Uh, and let me see if I can capture that briefly. Um, if so an, an approach has been, well, look, there's lots of metaphors for God, or maybe fatherhood doesn't really mean what we think it means. My, my, uh, our way of going about this was say, again, let's get to the center. And I'm very influenced by my theologian friends here that, you know, the incarnation is where we start, right? This is how we know God. I always often say I'm very Bardian, having been at Princeton for eight years. And so I think this is kind of a Bardian move, right? Mm -hmm. God's yes in Christ is where we start. And so if that's how we begin, then the way in which the evangelists tell this account Absolutely. How do we know that God is father? Well, God sent the son, right? That language, father-son language is always reciprocal. God is not a father in a vacuum. We don't think about what fathers are and project up. It is by virtue of the coming of the son. And if that is true, if that's how we know everything about God, then wouldn't that also be the place for us to consider how we think about gendered language for God? And so because this is an act by which God is revealed as father, totally believe in the eternal generation of the son, right? This, this intimate relationship between father and son. But I actually think that we are given that language for that uh, eternal relationship by virtue of the incarnation. And if God sent the son in this way that is non-sexualized in that very center of our faith is both the personal revelation of God as father and the absolute denial of God's maleness and God's masculinity. And then in this other chapter, I say, you know, yes, is God the sovereign in this situation? Is God transcendent? Is God the initiator? But we don't have to say that those are masculine things, right? The, the relationship between God and Mary is not between male and female. It's between God and a human female. It's between a sovereign and one who responds in faith. Mm -hmm. And so I just am trying to disentangle um, gendered ideas from that because I believe the text actually does so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any Protestants, you know, they're they're getting uneasy about the, the of Mary. Course, no. Of course. <laughs> no, um, but... You know, you do say that we need to recover um, kind of a piety about Mary, you know, in, in some mm -hmm. respects. There is a, I can't remember the quote off the top of my head, but you do mention that somewhere in the book. Right. Um, you know, I'm kind of a, an oddball in Ireland because I'm a Reformed Presbyterian and most people are Catholic. Okay. But um, 
but you know i, I i've seen like um mariology in many respects go to like really uh kind of dangerous extremes and kind of make christianity seem like a bit of a joke <laughs> to some people oh, you know yeah. like yeah. Uh, i'll some people like will worship they'll pray to mary but they're not comfortable praying to god or whatever it's just some very really weird stuff but you know mm -hmm. what can you say about getting you know the the balance of piety yeah. right you know yeah. And, you know, I recognize someone like yourself, I could learn a lot from you. And I've had some students from Latin America who have also expressed like, hey, this can go really wrong. Um, and, and so I want to continue to learn about that. I mean, I've tried to read widely, but it's not been my experience. So I, I recognize that I'm coming from a place, as I mentioned, where um, and, and a few feminist theologians have used this language that that Christianity becomes a, a boys club uh, in some ways. And so without any examples or presence of women, and it's not like they're not there in the text, right? They're absolutely co-workers, uh, faithful in the gospel, but they just sometimes haven't been mentioned or at least in the past. And so for those kind of Protestants, like reminding ourselves, like, what do we actually affirm, right? I mean, this you can't say even the most simple Christian confession, Jesus is Lord, without assuming like, how did Jesus come, right? This is so central to our faith. So for those kind, this kind of recovery of, hey, there has been a place for women in this story and not a secondary place, but a vital place, <laughs> right? And um, and so that, that could be helpful. Given that, uh, I think it's absolutely the case that at times, Mary, devotion to Mary has been a replacement for God. And that's the absolute biggest red flag that it's gone in the wrong direction. Uh, this idea that kind of God is distant and removed and uncaring or really harsh. Jesus becomes that way. And so let's go talk to Jesus's mom. She's super nice, right? It's the classic what you should not do when you're a kid with your parents, right? Like play one off of the other. Um, but I really have been encouraged both by my colleague, he's not Catholic, but has studied so widely that the art history tradition and a number of Catholic students here at Wheaton who have shown me that a healthy Marian piety does what the artwork does. Oh, many, many icons of Mary, she's pointing to Christ. And that's like any time I attend to her life, if I'm doing it well, then I'm drawn into a deeper awe of who Jesus is, of his humanity, what it means that the son of God took on flesh on our behalf. Mm -hmm. And also then the revelation of the triune God who chose to save us in this way. And so I have seen that it's possible to thread that needle, but I do think we always, um, you know, humans just have a tendency to go to one side or the other. So we always need to be mindful of not ignoring her and certainly not worshiping her. And that's all I'd also like to clarify this kind of, um, you know, I'm talking about God as father, Jesus as son, Mary as mother. Um, early on, an editor said, yeah, where's the Holy Spirit? <laughs> it's like, oh, that's good. I am not replacing the Holy Spirit with Mary. I want to be so clear on that. But actually, thank goodness in the writing, and I hope this means I was really listening to the text, the Holy Spirit is present throughout, right? We, we know nothing without the work of the Spirit to enlighten us. Uh, and if, clearly, the Spirit is very active in the Annunciation and the Incarnation. So, so um, Mary doesn't get up there as a fourth member of the Trinity, uh, but if we forget her, then actually one of the dangers is not only that women feel excluded, but much, much more weighty for all of us is that if we forget her, we forget the humanity of Jesus. And docetism is always very tempting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
And um, I, I think you do walk that line well of just clarif- of you know clarifying. Look, I'm not saying I'm not saying we worship Mary. I'm not saying this is a replacement for the Holy Spirit. That's of course, right. that's what um that's I think what Muhammad thought the Christians believed, if I remember correctly. He actually oh, I think that is part of that. Yeah, there's that passage in the Quran where he says mm-hmm. that they worship yeah God the God the Father, God the Mother, and God the Son or whatever. So right. yeah, yeah. But um no, I I think you do walk that line well. And um you know and another thing um that I greatly appreciate. Um, on this point is how your book drives home, you know, the central importance of the the incarnation and mm. the miraculous birth of Jesus. So, mm. you know, and and you've said you said there that it's central to the New Testament. Um, and how how would you account uh, for much of the New Testament supposed silence on this topic? And yeah. uh, so some would argue that this implies it's it's a myth. And of course, I think neither you or I want to done to go that way. Um, others of a more you know orthodox persuasion would acknowledge that it happened, but they would also say that clearly wasn't as significant for the likes of Mark and James, the right. author of Hebrews, you, you, you know, Peter, whatever. What, what do you think, you know, about that? That is such a perceptive question. Um, actually, when I wrote the the book, another um, author that was so helpful for me is a man named Andrew Lincoln, and he has a book called Born of a Virgin, question uh, mark. And I mentioned it several times. I'm engaged with it in the footnotes, but it's such a attentive, it's not kind of like, Oh, just the virgin birth. How dumb is that? I mean, it is a really serious engagement with the text, the tradition. What do we mean? And he really concludes that this is not a beneficial doctrine. I conclude the opposite. Uh, but I was so challenged by him to not be flippant in my assumption of virginal conception. Um, actually, there's significant portions of the book that I cut. Uh, both of my blind reviewers said, you are doing way too much. You need to pare down. And so I actually have another book coming out um, probably in another two years. I have a little more work to do on it, but ask this very question with the Pauline literature, right? Paul is super important. And I basically don't mention him hardly at all, except in my appendix. appendix. Um, and so he really says nothing other than Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So he knows the birth, but never mentions Mary. That being said, I have done some work uh, with several of his passages where he engages with Adam and Eve uh, and two of the more controversial passages on gender, 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, where I'm going to be making the argument that um, it does seem he's both aware of the virginal conception and builds upon it theologically, even though it doesn't it's not explicit in his text, except there at Galatians 4.4. So you are right. This is an unapologetic theological move, right? This is a canonical reading. Um, I do believe that this is true, that Mary was an eyewitness, that she passed this on. And while Paul doesn't mention it, Mark or Hebrews don't mention it, uh, I think it is in the logic of our faith. Uh, And so then we could find evidence of it if we're looking. I think that's actually true of Hebrews as well. That's kind of still where I spend a good amount of my time. And just the the deep assertions of both the flesh and blood of Jesus that the son takes on and that he comes from the tribe of Judah. Uh, there are also echoes here. Well, how does he get this flesh? How does he come from this tribe? Um, she's not explicit, but I do think she's assumed. Mm-hmm. And of course... Paul has a very strong theology of pre-existence, doesn't he? So, you know. Absolutely. Yes. You know, the, the, I, I didn't really know until a, a couple of years ago that that 
that verse exists where he said, you know, though he was very rich, he was made poor for our sake, you know, so he definitely knows what's, he definitely has a idea there that maybe hasn't been fleshed out as much as we'd want to, but. Um, right, right. Such wealth for discovery there. That's exactly right. But I do appreciate um, Oliver Crisp, a theologian. He was at Fuller. Now he's at St. Andrews. He has a great series of articles. He too would, you know, adhere to the creed himself. But he, but he says, as I quote, um, the, the whole of the Christian faith isn't, you don't have to have virginal conception. Like there could be a way. And he, he very um, clearly illuminates that possibility. And that even adds more weight. Like God could have done this in a different way, right? Jesus could have walked onto the earth fully human, but as an adult, or, you know, there's, we don't know the mind of God, but that God chose to come in this way, I think is an invitation for us to contemplate. What does that mean? What does that mean of the image of God that we all bear? Uh, and so that's what I want to turn to with this next work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'm actually super excited about that because um, that's something I've always wondered, you know, the the virgin birth and Paul. So yeah, we'll, we'll need to have you back one day. Sounds, <laughs> good. Sounds good. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to, at this point, you know, switch gears to, you know, talk a bit more about father language because, mm. you know, we've, you've discussed this a little bit before, um, but, you know, one of the points you make about father language is that the first person of the Trinity is father in the sense that he caused the conception mm. of Jesus and the son. Um, so in what sense is God our father? You know, mm. if, if me and if me and you were to say the Lord's right. prayer, you know, we didn't mean it in the same that way that he caused our yeah. conception or whatever. So, you know, how, how do we think about that term, do you think? Yes, I think the what I discovered is, again, the centrality of Christology for this. Um, and I think it was my early work on fatherhood that kind of cautioned me on this idea of we imagine what fathers are like in the Greco-Roman world or in Judaism, and then that must be what God was like in the text. Uh, the real insistence that God is not a kind of like inkblot father, right? Then that, that when then we could imagine any and all good or bad characteristics, but the fatherhood of God is so very particular in the son. Um, and if that is the case, then absolutely we are caught up into this relationship of intimacy, of honor. Uh, this is a lot of what I've done in Hebrews. Like if we are children of God, we get to be educated, we get to inherit, but that's only because we are in the language of Hebrews errors or participants in Christ or in the language of Paul that we are in Christo, that we are in mm -hmm. Christ. And so, or the language of Paul that, that so many have done really good work on adoption, right? We get adopted in. And so it's kind of, I always picture it like this kind of funnel. Uh, we have all of these blessings of sonship. And, and I have a recent article where I say, actually, sonship is the right language. I know that that's exclusive, but I do think that that's saying what it's meant to say in the first century. Daughters didn't have all the same privileges, but we are all called sons by virtue of being caught up into the son. Um, and so then as we all then are relating with God, we do so only through Christ funneled through him. And of course that is made possible by the gift of the Holy spirit. Mm -hmm. So you it is correct. And I think, you know, a Pauline scholar would say exactly the same thing. Uh, Christ's sonship is distinct from ours because we are adopted. We're grafted in, uh, we're brought to share and he is son by virtue of his eternal identity. 
And I suppose, and this is probably just my my disastrous layman theology, but in the in the uh, Johannine sense, ah. there there would sort of be that sense of uh, new birth, I suppose. And that, yes. so, I suppose in that sense, you could say that God God is our Father in that sense, and that He caused our birth. Oh. Or, yeah. Oh, that's such a wonderful insight. You know, I don't spend as much time as I should in John. So, so thank you for that reminder. Absolutely. He has this beautiful picture, but again, early on in John, you know, the coming of the only begotten, that's how we all get to be called sons of God and, and born anew. I actually think Paul has some new birth ideas as well. I've been kind of tracing this out in Galatians, actually. He definitely talks about adoption there. But then when he moves to the Harris, Sarah, and Hagar story, he's really saying, hey, guess what? You have a new mom. Uh, that's new birth uh, kind of language as well. So yeah. the radicalness of how we have been changed by being caught up into Christ is aptly described as new birth. But uh, right. We only know that this is true of God by virtue of the incarnation okay, and then okay. can only relate to God in that way because of the yeah, son. Absolutely. Get, get, getting on to the son, uh, just, just for a brief moment. Um, mm-hmm. just occurred to me a, a conversation I heard recently, um, was the debate over, uh, whether, um, the, the Messiah, the son could have been female. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Where do oh. you land on that? Uh, this is one of my favorite questions, uh, truly, because uh, I've spent, uh, you know, a little bit of time thinking about this. And uh, here's here's what, here's my answer. Um, I think in the past, theologians have done good work by saying, you know, in his time and culture, this makes sense. Right. God respects the time in which God is involved. Uh, that That's true. But but there are ways in which Jesus kind of bucks the boundaries. Right. So, you know, God could also transgress the boundaries of culture. I do think especially those who are quite attentive to Philippians 2 and the issue of like having power, but then giving up power for the sake of the other. I think a decent feminist argument is, you know, as male, he had power to give up. Uh, Were he female, he would not have had the same kind of power in the first century to disclose that really central uh, truth of God that God gives on on our behalf. I think that's helpful. Um, What I discovered along the way is that uh, my answer is a firm no. He absolutely had to be male. Uh, And here's why. If as a male, God has decided that he is going to be born, right? He's going to have the full human experience, conception to death. If the Messiah were female, then you would only have the female gender involved in that recapitulation, right? Mm. You'd have a woman giving the flesh to a woman and that would be really great, kind of the Anselmian idea, that which is unassumed is unredeemed, right? Well, women would be good, but our brothers would be left out. And so this really is the way that God encompasses male and female in the renewal that is the incarnation. Because born male, but where does he get his body? And the church, the, the tradition is like absolutely uncompromising on this. <laughs> He gets his humanity from her and her alone, right? That's just a different kind of corollary to the virginal conception. She provides his flesh. And so then you have this 
fascinating. Now he's fully male. I'm, I'm not questioning that. The, the text never kind of wonders as he meant, nope, he's male. But yet in, in a way that truly we have to say is mystery, his body is from a female alone. And hence my allusion to image of God language a bit ago. I think that's a really amazing picture of what we learn in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that the image of God is male and female right? There's this encompassing in Christ, the embodiment of both. And so were he to come as a female, then half of humanity would be left out. Hmm. Okay. I'll have to, I'll have to chew on that answer. Think, a lot exactly. Of, exactly. I don't of, think it's an argument that gets made a lot. Yeah. And so either I'm wrong and crazy, or hopefully I've articulated something that's right there in the tradition, but we just for virtue of our time and place, haven't had a reason to dis- discover yet. Sure. The the one thing I was thinking though when you said um um he got his body from her and her alone. Well, I suppose there is an a, there is a sense in which he got it from God the Father as well. Absolutely. Right? I'm sorry. That that was probably yeah. stated a little bit too strongly. You're you're precisely right. Yeah. And here's where Crisp, Oliver Crisp, does some really fun work. Like, what is Jesus's DNA? Uh, this is a question oh, that has been asked, and and he pursues it in a really theologically interesting way. And so at the end of the day, we have to say, well, there's a mystery here we don't understand. And so God had to provide something, absolutely. Um, but uh, but the the church was absolutely actually pretty adamant that Mary is not some kind of vessel uh, that, you know, she just is kind of this thing that Jesus flies through fully created that he's kind of ex nihilo. Tertullian says it really well. Irenaeus also like for, for him to have a connection to us, to humans, he has to get humanity from a human. And so then um, I guess the better way to say it is that there's no human male involved, right? Joseph, as kind and caring as he is, contributes nothing to the body of Jesus. Uh, so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time here, but um, it's been great to great to speak to you. And um, I just have uh, one more question, which I think is, is, is a fitting one. So, you know, You've talked about how you're reluctant to call the Holy Spirit a she, of course, and and, and I I totally understand that because then that I was just thinking, you know, that's probably what that might have been what got the Muslims got Muhammad confused, mm-hmm. maybe because you know if he's thinking the Holy Spirit is is a she mm-hmm. or whatever, who knows? Um, I'm not a Quranic scholar, but um, right, um, so. like um, what implications do you think your research has for the current debate on like God pronouns? So some would say that we shouldn't refer to God as he, but as God's self. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, Mm. I think I have a sneaking suspicion a lot of the time that some of that tends to come from a more, you know, progressive Mm -hmm. side of thinking about gender and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, where, where would you land on that? Yeah, yeah. It's a, such an important question. And really, it's a question that's been going on for, for decades now. And so um, I've tried to read a lot and, and I, I struggle a bit to, I, I think my short answer is, um, I believe that the church should absolutely continue with the triune name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? There's a, there's a privileging of those names by virtue of their frequency in scripture and because of the baptismal covenant. This is one thing that unifies Christians that were baptized into that name. And so I hope that this book 
has allowed people to reflect and be able to embrace more fully father and son language uh, and that is not exclusive uh, of, of anyone. Pronouns, of course, are trickier. I think in my own speech, it really depends on where I am. I, I want to avoid two things. I don't want to depersonalize God, right? I mean, this is the beauty of what's revealed here, that God as a community of triune love didn't need humanity, but said, I want to be in relationship with those who have gone astray and not just any relationship. He's not like our boss, right? Like God is father and there's an intimacy and an invitation there that I don't want to lose. And you, you communicate that in English, at least with pronouns. That being said, I have discovered these unstated assumptions of God's maleness. And so I'm also nervous about that. I, and of course, as I said, right, not for the sun. I use he for the sun all day long. Absolutely. Um, for God, the father, the first person, I sometimes am a little bit more thoughtful. If I know the person I'm speaking to and they have a robust faith and we're kind of on the same page, I'll kind of go to my natural, which is to use masculine pronouns. In my writing, I try to limit the use of that um, in a way that doesn't detract from God's personalness, but that wouldn't work to kind of solidify an assumption that I think is unhealthy. So I think it's a case-by-case -case basis until you'll hear me in language. And my seminary actually encouraged us to learn how to speak without male pronouns. So I was trained in that way for several years, but then being in a context like Wheaton, that's not the norm. Um, I've just had a number of people who've come up to me after I've spoken about this saying, you know, this language is really hard and I really want to listen to that, uh, to hear the pain that might be present, but also seek to invite them, like how can a recovery of the tradition be really healing? Sometimes that just takes time. And mm -hmm. so I'm willing to be patient with where people are in that. Mm -hmm. And would it be the same for the Holy Spirit? Uh, would you? Right. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would probably definitely um, use he uh, in some settings, but, but try to use it not very often. And, you know, I gave a paper recently where I was saying she with the Holy Spirit makes me very nervous. And a very respectable scholar said, you need to look more at the Syriac tradition. And so I probably need to do a little more research there. Maybe there's a way of doing that that I haven't discovered. So just want to name that what I've found so far, I don't think that's helpful, but I might need to read widely. Sure, sure. Well, um, those are, of course, all my questions, uh, Amy. So it's it's really been great to hear um, all that you have to say. There's definitely like, I'll have to listen back a few times and just because there's there's so much interesting things you had to say there. So um, thanks a million. Thanks a million Absolutely. for coming on. Oh, this has both been fun and really helpful. I imagine I'm going to start to have a few conversations about the book. And so this is a great way for me to get started. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm.